curious about why you got into psychology and cognitive psychology. What 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 led you as a student or as a young man in down that area? Well, I'm afraid that things were very different in those days, and uh, you're expecting a coherent intellectual answer to your question. <laughs> no, not necessarily. But, but you're not going to get it. <laughs> I got into psychology by a rather strange route. I got a scholarship to Cambridge to do in mathematics, but mathematics was appallingly taught at Cambridge. The lecturer used to come in the room, start scribbling lines on the board, equations and derivations, facing the board, and do that for one hour, then leave the room. What it was all for was completely unclear. I got very bored, turned my attention to bridge and chess, and after three years doing mathematics, or in my third year doing mathematics, it was clear to me that if I could have a fourth year, I'd be president of the University Bridge team, which at the time seemed a major achievement, more so than getting a good degree. So I looked round for a subject to do, which I could take for one year after my maths degree. And I met on the Christmas Post, I don't know whether Christmas Post is a, is a known term these days, not, not, not by me. Well, yes. at that time, with the mass amount of Christmas cards that were sent out by British people to other British people, they needed temporary workers on the post, and students often did temporary work on the post just before Christmas. And I had the good fortune to be sorting letters with someone who was doing psychology at St Andrews who said it was a very interesting subject. I read a book on factor analysis, which was semi-mathematical, mm. so I could follow it being a mathematician. It seemed quite interesting. So I went to see the professor of psychology and put my name down for experimental psychology one-year course, uh, intending to spend all my time playing bridge. Did you get to play any bridge? or was it? I played bridge. We lost to Oxford by a record margin that year. Uh, <laughs> but I was my first lecture, I remember, was given by Richard Gregory, and he said, we will take a basically materialist view of perception in this course. Somebody put their hand up and said, if you're going to make a statement like that, you have to defend it. Obviously, it was a set-up arrangement by Richard and this PhD student. And for, but for 40 minutes, there was this debate between Gregory and the postdoc and the PhD student, which is absolutely fascinating. Mm. And with a, a term of that sort of thing, I was much more hooked on psychology than I was on bridge. Yeah. So that's how I became a psychologist. That's fantastic. It's in, you're the second person to comment on Richard Gregory's lectures as well, actually. It's clearly a, an incredibly a phenomenal thing to have been part well, of. Well, also, we had a ex, we, experimental subjects for him, which involved going off in a van into the Suffolk countryside, where he'd found a viaduct which had, uh, where you get up, climb 10 foot at one end, and see down a hole with all these distance cues, and then you had a massive malalaya, and you put the malalaya at one end and climbed up the other end. And then you'd control, you did it in the neighbouring field. And this was far more interesting than mathematics lectures. <laughs> I, I can see that, I can see that. That's fantastic. There should, be, there should definitely be more of that. So you'd done... The extra year of psychology, did that, how did get, doing further research or study work for you then? What did you do Well, next? then I went, uh, came to UC to do a um, PhD in mathematical psychology, 
Halfway through that, I got a lectureship in Manchester. Uh, I was the only applicant. A friend of mine was on the, the organising the uh, interviews, so I got the job. Eighteen months later, a research fellowship back in UC came up, and I came back to UC to do that. And I was told to study again one of these random events. I was allocated to the study of memory, a subject which was very distant from my PhD and was an extremely boring subject at the time. It was verbal learning. Um, but after a couple of years of teaching uh, memory, there was a conference organised by Broadbent in Cambridge, which was three weeks, where all the leading memory theorists from America came over, or two or three of them. And it was fascinating. And then, as a result of that, Gus Craig, who was then at Birkbeck and I, set up a research memory seminar. And Elizabeth Warrington used to come to these seminars. Mm. And we couldn't quite understand why a clinician should be bothering to come to our memory seminars. Yeah. But in the pub one evening, after, because in those days, seminars used to be in the late afternoon, so mm. we'd go to the pub afterwards. Um, she mentioned this patient she had to me, who had, uh, according to her, intact long-term memory, no short-term memory. I immediately told her that that was theoretically impossible, so you'd better look again. And she said, well, you'd better come and see the patient with me. Yeah. The patient then had epileptic seizure the first time I saw him, but after that, it turned out that Elizabeth was completely right and I was completely wrong. But that's, I mean, that is a huge moment that you're describing, isn't it, in terms of the sort of the history of where psychology started to go as a result of, of those seminars starting and well, her coming. It, it started along with John Marshall and Frieda Newcomen came in Oxford. It helped to make neuropsychology a fashionable field. Mm. And it was extremely fashionable from then till about 2000. <laughs> question that I, I suspect you would sound stupid but you mentioned that your PhD was in mathematical psychology and for you what would be the difference between mathematical psychology and cognitive psychology or cognitive neuropsychology and not just the sort of clinical applications but the sort of the the nature of it as a as a field to study in well the the theory within mathematical psychology tended to be much more formalized so you had to make mathematical derivations. To, mm. uh, and it was very fashionable in the 1960s, but didn't really get very far. Um, basically, because the brain was a lot more complicated than we used to think. So that feels like that was the limits was what we could... How far that kind yeah, of... Yeah, we were dealing with things like reaction times and uh, yeah. sensory discrimination and things of that sort. Um, and... The data wasn't really powerful enough to disconfirm theories. Mm. So the theories got quite elaborate, but they just sort of petered out. Yeah. Well, they, didn't peter, they came back again it's about 30 years later, when there was more powerful data. Mm. But at the time, it was it was much less became much less interesting than actually working with patients. Yeah. What was it like working with Elizabeth? I mean, partly because of your background not being in, in clinical, you know, cl clinical issues, but also because she was doing sort of psychology within a medical. She was at the neurology. Hospital, yeah, she was in she? the national hospital. Yes. 
What, what was it like? Um, well, I, I moved there in 1970. I was a lecturer here from, well, a research fellow for 65 to 66, then 66 to 72 I was just a lecturer. And then I gave that up and became a research fellow in the Institute of Neurology, or National Hospital then, Institute. Um, so I was full-time research, in fact, full-time research from 72 until 1990 in various places. Mm. Um, but being in a, a major neurological hospital with lots and lots of very different sorts of patients, and especially working with Elizabeth, was absolutely fascinating because yeah. all sorts of different disorders would be passing through the hospital. Elizabeth had these two incredible skills. One was seeing a patient and realising there was some aspect to this patient which was not what you might have otherwise have expected and therefore that ought to be investigated. And yeah. secondly, she was extremely adept at organising development of new tests in a couple of days with research assistants so that you could be seeing a patient. She could see a patient, say on the Monday, she would then, dis if she was, if it was a patient that she thought I would be interested in, she'd discuss it with me. Mm. And the tests would be developed, particularly by her, over the next two or three days. And by the end of the week, we'll be testing the patient yeah. uh, experimentally. Yeah. Of course, couldn't do that these days because no ethics committee or anything of this sort. But it's true. When I was working with Andy Calder and Andy Young in the 1990s, that was pretty much what we were doing. I mean, not this weren't in a clinic, so there wasn't quite the rapid turnaround, but we've got some patients coming in and we want to test their vocal expression of emotion on something. Like, okay, go and make some stimuli, go and do it now. Occasionally, there were, you could meet a patient that was depressed by investigations of their condition, but much more often the patient was very pleased to be investigated. It meant they were much closer to the medical profession. Yeah. They were, and then their life was boring, and this was an interesting episode. And I think sometimes it's very, it is obviously very difficult to live with, you know, long-term chronic conditions. But um, not being ignored or just forgotten about is much, much worse than feeling like you're. It, this is interesting, and people, there's some interest to be learnt from this. We're, you know, part of that endeavour. I think it's not a trivial part of it for patients. No, no. Really... I think that the majority, at least, will be like that. Mm. Certainly, my experience. What was the first big paper that you published with Elizabeth? Was it on the patient? It was on this particular short-term memory patient. And how did that change your kind of cognitive approach to memory? Well, before I'd been what you might call a devout Hebbian, so I saw activity in cell assemblies leading to long, the formation of long-term traces. And therefore, I didn't see short-term memory or memory as subdivided into different domains at all. Um, and this made it clear that at least phonological short-term memory was a quite separate process from uh, uh, typical episodic memory, mm. the, as we would now call it, um, in other domains, with one being. And at the same time, Alan Baddeley was working with Elizabeth on amnesics, showing that the sort of, part, the page, sort of task that our patient had great difficulty with could be done perfectly well by amnesics who could remember nothing virtually mm. of what happened 20 minutes before. So it showed that the two types of memory system were very different. And then, of course, this has been developed much more with a whole variety of different memory systems. 
So when I was a student, one of the things that seemed really impressive and exciting about kind of cognitive neuropsychology as an approach was being able to draw these distinctions across patient groups. If you can find these dissociations of how the disorders apparently can break down, it did seem to tell you something about how the system seemed to be working. And I'm, I'm not certain we've functional imaging has been quite good at supporting some of that, but I've always been of the view that the functional imaging is inconsistent with the patient data, then something's wrong with your functional imaging. It, the, the, the gold standard, I think, is the neuropsychological... Yeah, in some respects, functional imaging has gone farther. For instance, uh, uh, Carl Friston's ideas of, uh, of the top-down process going on mm. at the same time as the bottom-up. That Ideas related to that didn't really come out of neuropsychology. But in, many, but in many respects, I think you're right that the neuropsychology provided at least a, a broad overview of how the mind was organised, mm. which functional imaging has shown to be basically right, but hasn't developed greatly. And, of course, I am being unfair. From the because, cognitive yeah. point of view. Obviously, from the anatomical point of view, functional imaging is far better. <laughs> Point? Was that in the, in the late 1970s? My research fellowship finished, um, and after a rather complex pas de deux with respect to Oxford, where Elizabeth and I resigned potential positions on the same day for various complicated reasons, <laughs> I went to the APU, which was a very, very uh, good place to work mm. during the period when I was there. From 1978 to 1990, but I used to come back to London, sort of, I used to spend three days a week in London and two days a week in Cambridge. Was that keep up clinical links or just yeah, other it was research? To, but yeah. Because my research was basically neuropsychological, I needed to be with patients in some way. And what was it like being at the APU? So this is the Applied Psychology Unit, now the Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge, and... Well, it must be coming up to 60 years old now as a unit. It's quite... I think it's more. It was founded, I think, in 1948. So it had roots in an extremely applied approach to psychology. It was being faced with technical issues that needed to be solved in terms of human behaviour. Particularly with respect to the armed forces, the mm. post office and things like that. Yes. Yes. And there used to be sailors. Yes, the, the armed services did that. Yes. The, the lots of the... Because a lot of the... Applied questions came from the armed services. There was this arrangement by which sailors came along and they were subjects. So, for instance, they'd be working on the effects of heat or sound yes. or something of like that. Yes. I, if you remember Priscilla Choi, when she first moved to Nottingham, her landlord had been one of the sailors. Ah. He was in the happiest times of his life. He loved it. So it, was, it was interesting. Well, it was a very, very nice place as yes. well. <laughs> but it so also it couldn't became... be more different from. When under Alan Baddeley's time, than being say in a clinical part of, in a clinical department mm. where patients are coming all the time and everybody's under great pressure to produce reports and things, while in the APU we could sit around for two and a half hours at lunchtime, having a, th a seminar on some theoretical issue. Yeah, it was chalk and cheese. And it must have been quite an extraordinary time to be there because it did develop into a real kind of powerhouse for a lot of psychological, cognitive psychology theory. When you were there, was that people like Don Norman visiting? I can't. Don Norman was there in the late mid-80s, yes, yes. 
But um, for instance, there were people like uh, well, Marsden Wilson. There was with, uh, Johnson Laird was there. Jeff Hinton was there. Um, John Morton. Um, Tony Marcel. Carolyn Patson. There was a mm. whole gamut of people there. So it was intellectually a, a great place to be. Absolutely. And also, Alan Badley ran it very nicely. It's a very nice place to work as well, yeah. as you remember. Well, yes. I mean, I've been obviously sort of slightly out of phase with you, but I've followed the same kind of trajectory between UCL and, and Cambridge. But it, um, the thing that really seemed striking to me, having been at UCL for a PhD and then going to the APU, was actually, the, at that time, the similarity in the approach. There was a very similar feel in seminars, like, OK, let's get to the questions, come on. This is the now the, the the real stuff starts when we all put you on our toes, and that felt quite similar. That was a c- characteristic of British of the best British psychology at the time. Yeah, that was that gave, this... gave us when someone gave a seminar, you asked them. You don't ask them polite questions. You ask you well, you, you ask them questions that are are not open ended and easy to, easy to answer. You ask difficult questions put in a polite fashion. Yeah, yeah. I can remember being sort of simultaneously horrified and very thrilled by it because it seemed like the level of discussion was quite dizzying. And I, and I was sitting around when I was first at the unit, realising I was going to have to start asking questions after a seminar and waiting to get to a seminar where I could ask a reasonable question and not sound like a fool. And it was a massive deal. And Tony Marcel came up to me afterwards and asked me who I was. Huh. That's the question. I thought, yes. Wasn't I think the temerity to ask a question. <laughs> yes. Well, he always asked about 20, you see. <laughs> exactly, yes. You're not Except, me, except when I was chairing and he wasn't allowed to ask more than two. <laughs> and so for you, in terms of the kind of development of theory, how were things changing for you in that time? Well, um, they changed a lot as a result of the influence of Jeff Hinton, who came... Uh, from San Diego, and he was there from 1980 to 82, I think. Um, but he, at the time, was just developing uh, multi-level neural nets with Sinowski. Uh, and they had they'd seen the effect of removing one neuron from their network. And this produced, this was a reading network, and it produced both tiny rate of visual errors and tiny rate of semantic errors. So I said, well, this is very much what occurs in the syndrome deep dyslexia. Yeah. So he and I then tried, or he basically did all the technical work, but he and I then worked on deep dyslexia and tried to simulate it. And then David Plout, who was a student of Hinton's, and I then continued the work until about 92, 93. So the way that I thought theoretically changed a lot mm. essentially as a result of his influence and um, the kind of supervisory attentional system and executive oh, that, that was another of these freak events uh, I was friendly with George and Jean Mandler uh, who he was an Austrian emigre in the States but he'd spent a lot of time in London so I got to know them in London um, and there was a a meeting in San Diego I was at and I was staying with them. Don Norman came to dinner and for about half an hour before dinner we were discussing consciousness and the following day I was due to go off with a couple of postdocs and John Norman's wife 
to go to the South California desert for a couple of days. And she appears with sort of reams of paper. Don apparently been up all night, sort of uh, putting down the ideas that we casually discussed mm. before dinner. I then went off to the Grand Canyon, came back from the Grand Canyon to San Diego, spent another day with him working on it, and this sort of started up our collaboration. Mm. And it was, in fact, the paper with him was the oddest paper I'd ever written because we wouldn't, we never sat down and actually decided what we thought. He would sit we, in the basement of his house, looking at the surfers in the South in the Pacific, uh, near San Diego. Thirteen hours a day for about uh, two weeks. And we just start at the beginning of the paper, work through it. And when we came to any disagreement, put it at the end of the paper. We went round and round and round and round. Mm. And eventually we had a paper. Yeah. Without ever having <laughs> decided that that's what we thought beforehand. It's a really nice example of the, you know, this whole kind of theory about writing is that it's, it, it's actually a creative, you're putting words onto the page. Type, you know, it's, that is the thing. You are actually, it's a cognitive process. You're not... Yeah thinking it all and then just expressing it. And then and I went back to Cambridge and we had another couple of... Uh, we sent letters to one another in those days. And then that was the paper, mm. which, of course, we couldn't publish in any journal. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you publish it? It was published in a book. Michael Posner, about 20 years later, came up and apologised. He gave a talk which he referred <laughs> extensively to our, our model. Then said... You realise I was one of the referees that said if you did a year's empirical work, <laughs> it would have been worth the journal publishing. <laughs> that's that's always been a twenty twenty hindsight, isn't it? That's a, that's fantastic. And so, what? Before we come back to coming back to UCL, was there anything else that sort of strikes you about that time in Cambridge? Well just how different it was from the research world now. Mm. For instance, I was there for 12 years. I never had to present my work to any committee, never had to write anything for a committee. Mm -hmm. Alan Baddeley would go along to head office and he would say, well, Charlie's had done X, Y, Z, W. Yeah. That would be sufficient, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think for most of the staff it was rather similar. So that provided that you were producing things, no one asked any questions. Yeah. I might, this may be an incorrect perception, but my impression when I was at the unit in the early 90s was that it was very top-heavy. The weight of the numbers of staff was towards PIs, towards senior scientists. And there were junior staff there. But I know that, that because that did change over the next few years quite Yeah, what happened was that uh, um, essentially there were about 20 senior scientists and they'd have at most one research officer working with them. Yeah. And they were all independent of each other. Yeah. And quite a number of them would have considerable amount of applied work to do that was decided by Alan who they would be. And mm. The others were let, just to let, allowed yeah. to get on with what they were doing. So 
I had when I was there, one research officer who was stationed at the National. And that was it. Yeah. It worked very well. Yeah. It does seem quite idyllic in retrospect. So I don't know how people would cope without the research support now, but just in terms of the, the numbers well, the, of senior there was, people. There was yeah. technical support. There was excellent technical yeah. support, ex excellent secretarial support, that sort of thing. Yeah. That was, but that was provided collectively. And what brought you back to UCL? Well, as you say, it was, it was quite idyllic, but it, I needed something different. And I also lived in London, mm. so the splitting my life between London and Cambridge was, was not ideal domestically. And there used to be two chairs in the psychology department, head of department and someone whose basic role was to encourage research. Yeah. So it was a nice position. Yeah. And then that developed, thanks to Derek Roberts, who was the provost at the time, splendid character. Uh, into the ICN. So what was the route for that? Because... We had two lines of origin. One, Roberts himself was an electrical engineer, had been the research director of GEC, big electrical company, electronics company. Um, so he was interested in the brain as a, as a computing device. Mm. But also he knew... David Sainsbury quite well, Lord Sainsbury, and knew that Sainsbury was interested in uh, setting up a unit somewhere which would be related to the interface between uh, cognition and machines. So the ICM was set up both to do, also Roberts wanted to integrate in some way, in, at least in some areas, UCL's diverse, geographically diverse and administratively diverse units like the Institute of Neurology, Institute mm. of Ophthalmology. So he wanted a cross-departmental, cross-institution uh, institute which would take a particular topic. So he decided to set up the ICN so that, Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience that is, so that um, it would be a possible home to link a link up with a, a Gatsby unit if that mm. was created by Sainsbury, which it then was. And since I'd worked with Jeff Hinton, and he was an a ideal person for, the, for them to try and recruit, mm. this all made a, it's all worked very well, until he decided to go back to Canada <laughs> for various reasons to do with his children. So that was, the ICN started in 96? Yes. Was it a sort of virtual institute for a It was a virtual institute organising seminars. But then this building, the Alexandra House, had been a, a company of solicitors. And it came on the market for one week. And Roberts had to decide whether to allocate 15 years' worth of rent mm. for UCL to take it over, to put us in it, the ICN. And he was that sort of character that he was capable of making decisions like that. Yeah, yes. Very quickly, which he then did. I gave a talk in Manchester a few years ago and somebody came up to me and said, is that Alexandra House? I had a picture of the ICN on my first slide and I said yes. And he said, I was born on the fifth floor. Oh. And his dad had been the caretaker when this was the RAF building. Oh. And he went to school 
at St George the Martyr on the corner where my son went to school, but he was a schoolmate of Trevor Robbins. Oh. <laughs> so, well, too many things. I thought was Trevor extreme. Robbins was from South London. Well, he claimed to have been to school with Trevor Robbins. <laughs> Primary school, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, that was... And then it, turned, it was a hospital originally. I have no idea what it was before the solicitors. In fact, I didn't know that it was RAF. RAF said the officers' mess was the third floor. The ma- um, oh, second floor. Second, third floor was the officers' mess. Second floor was the map room. So that has been a huge thing, though, because the the ICN. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm here, but it, it's sort of without peer in the UK and in Europe. Really, it is very quickly became. Well, as far as we know, there was maybe one other Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience in the world when we set it up. Mm. Was that Leipzig? I don't know where it was. I don't think it was Leipzig. Because in Leipzig you've got about four Max Planck Institutes, but um, they're not... One of them is straight functional imaging, for instance. And what really helped to make it, though, of course, with, with the fill just three or four doors down. So you had this... What was undoubtedly the most the leading functional imaging lab in the world at the time, mm. whether it still is, I don't know, but still pretty strong. And we were four doors away. Mm. Then we got the National Hospital and the patients across the square. Yeah. So it was an absolutely fantastic location. Yeah. And that is enormously important. I think so. I think it's remained so. Yes. It's a really important part of the Queen Square community. So that, for instance, the new Gatsby Welcome Building. The other side of Tottenham Court Road, maybe half a mile away, but the number of times you go there is so much less. Might as well be on the moon. It's yeah, not quite, not but it's <laughs> almost. Yeah, it's not got that kind of mix. Well, being community. able to go yeah. to the seminar in the fill without uh, thinking about it. Yeah, and how was that as a personal experience for you? Because now you're directing a unit. I was had this extremely supportive provost, David Roberts. Uh, who made some mistakes, for instance, I wanted to, we wanted to offer Daniel Walford, who was in physiology, neurophysiology, in the Institute of Neurology space, so as to get him, who was an extremely powerful uh, researcher. And Roberts refused to allow this on the grounds that he wasn't giving space to the Institute of Neurology. <laughs> a couple of offices, that was all. But in general, he was incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and I was allowed to select from all the people available in UC those that would come here. Yeah. Without having any responsibility to organise teaching. Yeah. So it wasn't like a standard head of department's job, which is much more bureaucratic. Yeah. So it was a very attractive thing to do for a few years. Yeah. And I think it certainly, it really has, well, it's a testament to your, everything involved in terms of setting it up and, Again, I'm biased, but for me, it's one of the... I can't quite... I, I have tried working other places, and it's not the same. It's not got a, quite that mix of sort of... It's collegiate, but also separate. You're not... Yes. That, you know, it's definitely... So it's, some, of, some of it was modelled on the APU, but yeah. you're not under... The director doesn't direct the research, which is called in the APU. Yeah. So it's not like working in an MRC lab or anything of this sort. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the, for instance, setting up things like having tea or coffee available where people can meet, this was modelled on the APU. The, the thing, one of the things I really missed with the APU was simply being near students 
being part, feeling like part of a university. And here, although we don't have, because we don't have undergraduate teaching on the site, and we have master's students, there is a, it feels like a comfortable middle ground between no students whatsoever and absolutely overwhelmed with undergraduates. There's that, there's a real sort of separation. Yeah, well, that's what we planned. Well, exactly. This, this, I, I, I realised that was absolutely planned. of staff yes I had an extremely cooperative and uh, brilliant people mm. came to work Uta Frith John Driver yeah. Neil Burgess etc etc yeah because it did appeal to people to be in this particular location and it's a slightly different so that you know a good number of PIs but also lots of space for more junior people again yes. gives that a slightly different you know more like the FIL that kind of yeah, but the FAL, every, everything's open plan. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> thank <laughs> you, for, thank you for not doing that. <laughs> All the evidence is in now and everybody hates them. <laughs> open plan offices, they're disastrous. Donald Broadbent, I'm sure, could have said this easily, but it's not, I'm not adding anything new to this debate, but they are an absolute disaster acoustically. I was thinking about something that you said at the centenary celebrations for the psychology department in 1997. Um, and Peter Fonagy had stood up and said, "You know, psychology has no dominant. Um, you, you need a th you need a sort of a constraining theory, and uh, that's what psychodynamic approaches give you." And you said, "Well, we've got the brain now, and the brain's giving us these sets of constraints for our theorising and our modelling. That's giving us sort of a meaningful framework to work in that we didn't have before. Now, through the patient work and the functional imaging work." Does that feel to you, well, have I misremembered it completely? Or and does that feel that that's how there has been a very positive outcome from this kind of development of cognitive neuroscience as a standalone discipline? Well, obviously a very collaborative discipline, but, you know, as a new discipline. Well, I'm very pleased that I said that. <laughs> I don't remember saying it at the moment. But, uh, I think you're a bit cross. I can imagine. I you'll find you've got brains. <laughs> I can imagine myself saying it, but... Uh, no, I think this is right, that, um, as I said, mathematical psychology in the 1960s really wasn't getting anywhere because mm. there were no strong empirical constraints to theorising. There were rather weak empirical data which could be fitted into all sorts of different theories. And the brain provided strong constraints mm. so that at least the, the first stage of theorising, the sort of thing you get in something like Alan Bradley's working memory model, which is rather simple separation of different subsystems that stood the test of time mm. whether we've got beyond that in more computational modeling seems to be less clear yeah but at least we've made one major step forward yeah i also have one i'm, I'm trying to ask everybody this question but um one of my favorite papers from when I was an undergraduate and PhD student, is um, Alan Newell's. That's like a commentary oh, paper. Yes, called, yes. You, you, you can't, can't ask questions. You can't play twenty questions with nature and win. Of, you know, kind of the yeah. Idea. Well, this this is, this is essentially the same, saying the same thing. Mm. If you start from some abstract idea and then develop that idea without any strong empirical constraints, it doesn't work. You have to have. Yeah. Well, in his, his case, he was arguing for the importance of a theoretical mechanism like production systems or the like. But I would argue that 
the, what did you say, the constraint from what we know about the brain mm. provides an equally important, if possibly more important, constraining factor so that you can't just go, uh, in, can't do everything just from uh, clever thinking about things in the abstract, which it would be, would be obvious to scientists in most fields anyhow. Um, I suppose one of the things that was interesting in that commentary paper was he says, you know, with all these lovely studies going on, on these lovely, and they have nothing in common with each other, exactly as you say, because there's no kind of, you know, from his perspective, the sort of organising framework isn't in place. I sometimes, I sometimes, if I'm feeling depressed about functional imaging, look at functional imaging papers and think, if we just recreated it, we're, just, we're still not reading each other's papers, we're still... We might be working the same constraints, but we're not necessarily synthesizing. Is there enough synthesizing across what's going on? Are we taking enough advantage of the fact that we have this common framework that we're working within? Well, I think that's to be explained more sociologically than intellectually. I think. I mean, the when I described the way that life was in the APU, sitting around for two and a half, two and a half hours having an interesting theoretical discussion. People can't do that anymore because they have to get the next paper out mm. within six months. Otherwise, there would, the possibility of moving up in the academic hierarchy or getting grants would, would disappear. Yeah. So everybody has to have their nose to the grindstone. And if you're writing two papers a year, you have more time to think of something really original than if you're writing ten papers a year. I, I mean, I look yeah. at my own productivity until about 1990. I was talking to Uta Pith about this two days ago. Each of us had about one or two papers a year till about 19. John Duncan is the same. After 1990, getting 10, 15 papers a year. Yeah. The quality may not be quite the same. <laughs> it's true, though. It is true. And I think the rise in sort of just the sheer amount of administrative duties people have to do as well. Oh, this, this is, as you say, the technical support is this different. Is, this is stressful. ridiculous. I remember... Towards the end of the, my period at the ICN, I got a, uh, a memo from the, uh, the personnel department or something similar, say they wanted to know the uh, ICN's policy on 64 different issues, which went from health and safety, cleaning, up to, for instance, uh, uh, production of papers and the like. Yes. I have one last question for you, um, which is... Science is a fantastic job, and one of the things that's almost too engaging about it is it can catch up. You know, you can be thinking about it, doing it in all sorts of situations. What for you is something that you enjoy doing and have enjoyed doing that's not scientific? Well, uh, any hobbies or other interests? I would say my well, lots of things like going to the theatre and cinema, but like everybody does that. My two main I've done. All my life I've either been a rock climber or a mountain walker. So I've been in the Alps, in the Andes, in the Himalayas. Mm. And this is from being... what The one thing you haven't asked about is I come from Lancashire, a, a county that you may have heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and this is surrounded by little mountains. Mm. The Peak District, the Lake District, North Wales. So uh, from an early child, from a five-year-old, I was going on mountains. Mm. So I'm obsessed by mountains. Mm. But I'm even more obsessed by chess... When I was a student at Cambridge, 
I was only on the second chess team while I was on the first bridge team. But I gave up bridge very quickly, but I've never given up chess. <laughs> and I'm completely addicted to it. So I shall be playing in a tournament on Saturday and another one on Tuesday. This is excellent. So this is still really a big part of your life. Yes, yes, very it. much so. I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, for me, the um, when I started at this, the UCL Psychology Department for a PhD, I could not believe um, that you were there because I'd come from in you know, a polytechnic, and there were names floating around. Elizabeth Warrington's name, Brown Butterworth. You know, I'd heard people's names, but I'd been reading your papers, and then you were there on the first day taking us through and teaching us. I think some of my best things I did in the first year of my PhD was doing those theoretical seminars that you used to run with the PhD students. And I think I learnt more about psychology and science from that year than anything before or since. It was transformative for me. So I don't, we don't often get the opportunity to say thank you, but I would say thank you a great deal for obviously all your work, but particularly personally for me for that. It was amazing. Oh, very nice. Thank it was a, you. Well, it was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Scott.